This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Last week we were in chapter 16, and what we learned was that Paul and Silas went to Philippi, and we saw how God saved and worked in different kinds of people's lives. We saw a upper-middle-class, likely businesswoman, religious lady, uh, Lydia, upper-middle-class, religious businesswoman. She gets radically saved by, by God. Uh, and then the next passage is a demonized, that is, demon-inhabited slave girl, complete opposite end of the social spectrum. She was a medium who foretold the future. Uh, She gets radically delivered of this demon. And then because Paul uh, delivered this lady by, in Jesus' name, of a demon, he gets arrested and goes to jail, gets beaten, put in the stocks, and the jailer gets converted. And there's the start of the church at Philippi. Uh, We don't know that the slave girl got converted, but she certainly got freed. So probably the church start is a middle-class businesswoman, an ex-slave, ex-demonized woman, and a jailer. So there's your church planning team, and Philippians takes off. Now, after that, Paul leaves Philippians, and uh, he and Silas come to Thessalonica. So I'm gonna, we're going to see the mission in Thessalonica, the mission in Berea, and then the mission in Athens. I'm going to try to move very fast through these first two cities, because I want to camp at Athens today. Um, so let's read the first section. We'll read it a section at a time, see what we can learn from it. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, "'These men!' who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll uh, look at this. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this recording that we have in Acts of how you move and how you deliver and rescue people and how you work in their lives and how you do all of that through the message of Jesus. And we pray today that we would hear that message and that we would walk in the freedom, that those of us who are in a pit today would would be freed from that pit, that we would sing songs of joy, Lord, that we would see you, that our eyes would be uncovered to how great you are today. And as we look at this passage, I pray that you would help us to see you, and I pray that you would help us to see those around us as you see them. God, give us our burden, give us your burden For those who don't know you, we pray today as well. So open our eyes and speak to us through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, so they're in Thessalonica. This is 100 miles from Philippians. So they've been in Philippi. They travel to Thessalonica. Uh, That is the capital of Macedonia. So they're in Macedonia. This is really all Greece. So Macedonia has Philippi and Thessalonica. We would call it Greece. And then it also has Achaia. So there's Macedonia. Those are the two major cities in Macedonia. And then there's Achaia, which has... um, which has Athens and Corinth, which we're about to look at. So they're here, and they go in, and they do what they typically do. If you've been around for the book of Acts, this sounds like, haven't we heard this sermon before? Didn't we already read this passage? Because it always happens the same way. They go into a town, they start preaching the gospel in the synagogue to the Jews. That's exactly what they do here. Some people are converted. You'll look at that. Paul goes three weeks in a row, verse 2, and he reasoned with them explaining that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he says, open your Hebrew Bibles. He walks them through the Old Testament. He shows them that Jesus is the Messiah. He tells them Jesus died for sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Believe in Jesus and receive new life. So he tells them that, and what happens? Well, some of them believe. This happens in every city. Some were persuaded and joined them. Uh, many of the, the, of the Jews did, the Greeks, the devout Greeks, that is the God-fearers, and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5, always happens, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Okay, have you ever heard the term rabble-rouser? That, these are literal rabble-rousers. They go to the rabble. What's the rabble? That's like the misfits. I don't know what they would call them. I mean, I'm not trying to be self-righteous, but like the losers, the outcasts, the troublemakers, the bums that just stir up trouble. That's them. They go to the rabble and they say, hey guys, you don't know what's going on, but let's form a mob and beat somebody up. Yeah, that's great. So they, they all go and they're looking for Paul. They go to Jason's house because Paul's staying with Jason. Paul's not there. So what does the rabble do? They pull Jason out of the house with his friends and they take him before the city authorities. This always happens. There's some kind of conflict wherever Paul Paul goes. So when they take them in front of the city authorities, they say, these men have turned the world upside down. You ever heard that phrase? I mean, I used to think that was like a really positive statement. Let's be like the disciples. They turned the world upside down. I used to think what that meant was they preached the gospel and people became Christians and everybody loved one another and it's, it changed for good. That's not what he's saying. This is, a, this is an accusation of a crime. He's saying they have, they have turned over the social order. These men have turned the world upside down and they're here, verse 7. Jason received them. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king. This isn't like, isn't it great revival is happening? This is a charge of sedition, rebellion, revolution, treason. They're saying these guys, everywhere they go, they're treasonous. And you know what they're saying? They're saying there's another king besides Caesar, and his name is Jesus. And so they should be arrested for treason. They should be uh, harmed, silenced for what they're doing. So... um, The people of the city, verse 8, they're disturbed by this when they hear this. And so what they do is Paul's not there. They they didn't catch him. So they make Jason and the other guys pay money as security. It doesn't really explain what this means. Luke doesn't really explain. But likely what's going on is they had to pay the leaders a sum of money to be set free. uh, And that was a guarantee that Paul and his companions wouldn't be turning uh, Thessalonica upside down in revolution as they were other places. Now, this isn't what they were doing. They weren't revolutionary politically speaking, but they're charged with that. So ultimately they move on. And this happens wherever Paul preaches the gospel. Some believe, others are envious and jealous. They start fights. 
uh, start throwing rocks, start throwing blows, start arresting people. Uh, this, this, wherever he goes, there's, there's a mess around this gospel ministry. But he keeps on going. That's something I want to look at. It, Paul continues on. He's just been beaten and jailed in chapter 16 and put in the stocks. And he's immediately out preaching the gospel again. He just continues. Next, he goes to Berea. Look at verse 10. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Okay, so here's what happens now. They, they go to this town called Berea, and they start preaching the gospel in the synagogue, and it's different. It says they are noble. It means they were open-minded is what it means. They received, verse 11, they received the word and they're eager. So they're leaning in. They're hearing what Paul's saying, and they're responsive. And not only are they eager, they're not naive, because it says next, they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they're hearing the message that Paul's bringing, they're leaning in, they're ready, they're eager, and they're also doing their homework to check out what Paul says. And that's what we should all do. I mean, this passage isn't about how to hear a sermon, but that's really what we should all do. Uh, You shouldn't believe what I say because I'm saying it. You shouldn't believe what any preacher says because he says it. I'm not advocating, you know, cynicism and, okay, I'm I'm looking for fault. I'm not recommending that. Uh, But we should do this. We should be eager. We should hear the word eager, leaning in. Feed me, Lord. Let me hear what you have to say to me. But I'm going to take my Bible and I'm going to look it over and make sure that what I heard is from the Bible and is true. And uh, that's why we teach through books of the Bible, generally speaking, because it's really easy for you to track with the Bible and see if what we're saying is true. If I come up with my ideas, five tips for so-and-so, and I just pull some random scriptures and put them together, it's very hard for you to discern is that biblical. Because you've got to go back to five places and study all the context and earn, learn, did I just yank that out of context to make my point, or is that really there? When we go through passages like this, it's easy for you to fulfill that responsibility, and it is a responsibility, to examine the scripture and to apply it to your life in community with others. It's a lot easier when we're walking through week by week. You go, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Yeah, we already do that, and it's, it's just easy. Preachers can't pull a fast one on you. No, we wouldn't want to, but you can't do that, and you're able to track. So we want to come Sundays leaning forward, eager to hear from God, believing the best about the preachers we hear, trusting they've got something uh, they've studied and they've heard from the Lord, um, but we want to check it out and uh, make sure that what they're saying is what the scripture says, and ensure that we're applying it to our lives as well. So that's the Brians. That's noble. That's noble to to respond to God's word that way, and that's what they do. But look at verse 12, uh, verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came there agitating and stirring up the crowds. 
The same guys from the previous city that are getting the rabble and starting them up. Now it's like rabble on tour. Hey guys, let's go to another city. Let's go to Berea. They're not here. We can go cause trouble in another. Yeah, everybody, rabble. They get, they get in there, a gang of rabble rousers. They go to the new city. They start causing trouble. They agitate. They slander. They lie. They stir people up. And, and, and the brothers, verse 14, send Paul off on the, his way to the sea. They don't even want to mess with this. These guys are tracking them down, and they just say, we preached the gospel. These people studied the word. They're good Bereans. They read the Bible. They're going to be okay, and we're, go, we're sending Paul off. So they put Paul on a boat. They take him to Athens. They, they, uh, the, the people who conduct him uh, get Paul down to Athens. They, they then hear from Paul. He says, go get Silas and Timothy. And tell them to come to me as soon as possible. So Paul's in Athens by himself waiting for the others to come. Look what happens in Athens. Now while Paul, verse 16, was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul is by himself. He's in uh, Athens. His companions are still uh, in Berea. He's waiting for them. And what is it that he does? Well, he begins to preach the gospel again. He, we see that Paul begins to reach out. Paul is persevering. I mean, now Paul is essentially on vacation. Essentially. He's by himself. He doesn't have his team. And he's just hanging out in Athens, seeing the sights. I mean, there's no city like Athens. Uh, It has all this cultural history. He's seeing the sights, but he is preaching the gospel even while he is on vacation. Paul just keeps persistently plodding along. One, One city, he has trouble, he just moves to the next place preaches the gospel, has trouble, moves to the next place. And then here's what he does. He goes back to the previous places we see in his journeys and visits them. He's just persevering with the gospel. And if we look at Acts at 30,000 feet, kind of like an overview vision, I think, there's a, I think there's a truth there that's valuable for us, that there is something powerful that God wants us to have a heart for people, that he works through us, that we're persevering in mission. I mean, that is just so key that we're persevering. Here's, I can just give up. At the first sign that somebody's disinterested, I can just say, okay, well, I did all I could do there and just move on. But Paul just keeps going or get discouraged. Or maybe there's someone like a family member or a friend you've been praying for. And after a while you pray and they just don't show any interest in the Lord. And so you just forget. You just stop praying. Because I lack that gospel-driven, grace-motivated, persevering and plodding along. That's Paul. Everywhere, he just keeps plodding. He just stays consistent. Then he wraps his way back around to cities where he has received rejection. I uh, receive a prayer letter from a missionary that's reaching an unreached people group in northern 
Africa, and, and in the most recent prayer letter, I think I got it last week or something, uh, this was a quote. It a quote from William Carey. William Carey is known as the father, called the father of modern missions. And uh, William Carey wrote this. He, he once said this, or rather he said this. He once said this to his nephew. Quote, Eustace, that was the nephew's name, Eustace, if after my removal anyone should think it worthwhile to write my life, I will give you a criterion by which you may judge of its correctness. That's kind of wordy. Here's what he's saying. After I'm dead, if somebody writes my biography, here's how you'll know if they're telling the truth. Here's how you'll know. If he gives me credit for being a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any pursuit. To this I owe everything. That's Paul. Here's William Carey. He's saying, look, if they say I'm brilliant, uh, I'm a great preacher, I'm a tremendous counselor, God did miracles through me, if they say anything like that, it's way too much. If they just say he showed up for work every day and kept loving, kept serving, kept preaching, just plodded along, then they will accurately describe my life. That is Paul. He just keeps going, keeps plodding. And there's something there that God works in people's lives. God, God is long-suffering with us. God is the hound of heaven who pursues us, who just keeps after us. And when we have God's heart for people, that's how we will respond. That's how Paul acted. That's how William Carey acted. I wonder how God is calling you to persevere today. Who is it that with whom is God calling you to persevere Who is it that God's saying, nope, stay faithful, keep praying, keep loving, keep serving. Don't give up on your parent. Don't give up on your sibling. Don't give up on your child who's drifted far from the faith. Do not keep plotting, keep praying, keep looking for opportunities. Don't give up on your boss, your employee, whoever it is. Keep plotting because God is pursuing them. Persevere in prayer, in love, in service, in witness. And we're not Paul, but I believe God places in our lives one person, two people, three people, that he might have us for days, weeks, months, years praying for. I'll never forget a testimony we had early in the life of the church where, uh, I'm just remembering this, where Diane Shaw shared the testimony of her grandmother coming to faith. Was she 100? At 100 before she died at 100. Family prayed for her, witnessed to her, and she got saved at 100 years old. So maybe you can quit at 100, but you stay with them till 100 because God is pursuing, pursuing them. That's Paul. And so now he's in Athens. He's on holiday, so to speak, waiting for the others to come. And what's he doing? Well, he's reasoning, verse 17, in the synagogue. He always does that. Doesn't seem to be a lot of trouble in this situation. He is in the marketplace, verse 17, every day with those who happen to be there. It's it's called the Agora. The marketplace was the place where all the coffee shops were, metaphorically speaking. All the coffee shops, all the hangout. It was the pub, the mall, the wherever you hang out. Uh, That's where it was. It was that hangout kind of a place where everyone was discussing the ideas of the day, because look at verse 21. All they wanted to do was spend their time telling and hearing something new. So he's there, and uh, he's there talking to a bunch of different 
philosophers, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Um, when, this, when this passage is looked at, the one we're looking at right now, Acts 17, it's usually taught as a model for apologetics, which is not the study of saying I'm sorry. It's the defense of the faith. Apologetics is giving a defense or a reason. It's usually taught as a, an apologetic method, an evangelistic method, how to interact with those who uh, have no religious background and no common ground with the Judeo-Christian understanding of God. That's often how it's taught, and that's valuable. We could do a whole seminar about Paul's apologetic here, uh, and I'm sure we'd be helped. But I I don't want to talk about his methodology as much. We'll look at it briefly. But I'd rather talk more about his motivation. Because motivation for evangelism and outreach mission is preeminent. If we have God's heart, if we have the right motivation, I'm confident the methodology will fall into place. I'm confident. And even if you don't know all the arguments apologetically, you can find someone who does. There's a book, there's a person, there's a, there's a YouTube video. There's someone who can answer the questions, okay? It's the heart that Paul has. If we have the right motivation, usually the methodology will fall into place. Look what Paul is doing. He's waiting for them, verse 16. He's hanging out in the marketplace. He's looking around town. He's talking to philosophers. And his spirit is provoked within him, verse 16, as he saw that the city was full of idols. The city is flooded with idols. I mean, he is in Athens. This is the birthplace of Western civilization. This is the city with the leading historic architecture, artwork. This is where Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, that's the guys who hung out here historically. And it's not in its heyday now. Like Corinth is a cooler place to live now. So people have moved out of Athens, and if you're really edgy, you're down in Corinth at this point. But they still have this history. They have philosophic, they still love, like verse, like we read, verse 21, they still love to talk about all the ideas. They still love to debate. They still love, that's their entertainment. They still love philosophy. They still love all of the various uh, uh, religious conversations, and they're still intellectually proud as a city. And so Paul is looking around this city. He's, he's interacting with people. This is a city with tremendous buildings, monuments. But as he looks around at the statues, the artwork, the shrines, the temple, they're all devoted to gods. And when he looks at this, he is provoked, verse 16, within him. It, it, the word means that he is distressed when he sees the idolatry. It's the exact same language that's used of God when he sees idolatry in the Old Testament. At Mount Sinai, when when his people make gods, there is this provoking of God. Isaiah uses this word to describe God. It is to be distressed. It is literally to be upset. Paul looks around, and he is not blown away by the creativity. Finest artwork in the world was likely there. He's not, whoa, this is amazing. Beautiful. Now, now, I'm not saying it's not appropriate to appreciate artwork, anything that communicates goodness, truth, and beauty uh, by common grace. We can celebrate that. We can see uh, God's creative stamp in people's lives who don't know him, but, but even in their lives, they're made in his image and they create beautiful art, beautiful music, uh, beautiful film, all of that. So I'm not saying we don't appreciate that. We do. But what I'm saying is here, when Paul looked around, he saw that all of this art, all of this architecture, all of this construction was devoted to gods, false gods. 
And he is severely emotionally distressed. He is provoked in his heart, is what the word means. He is provoked. He's not wowed. He's crushed in his spirit. One author I read offered several reasons why this could be. Ajith Fernando, in his commentary on Acts, says that he looked around and he realized people were missing the reason they were created. Why did they have the creative skill to create beautiful art? Why did they have the ability to design and execute the construction of magnificent buildings? Why did they have the ability to fashion and shape? Why did they have these gifts? Why did they have the ability to think clearly and construct logical arguments to philosophize? Why did they have these gifts? For the, to use them for the glory of God. And yes, they, yet they are missing out. They are clueless. They are spending it all on false gods. Secondly, they are defying God. God said there are to be no no images, there are to be no idols created. Isaiah 42, God says, 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God is, will not share his glory. God is not neutral toward the creation and the praise of idols. God is not postmodern saying, well, there's a lot of different ways and your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. That's not the God of the Bible. That may be the American mindset. That's not the God of the Bible. And so Paul looks at this and he realizes these people are defying God and he's about to tell them they will face his judgment for it. And because of that, his heart is, his heart is grieved that they are not honoring God. The glory of God is being stolen away and spent on idols. And thirdly, he grieves over the consequences of their unbelief. Where has it led them? It's led them to utter emptiness, and it will lead them to an eternity under the judgment of God. He's going to tell them. He's about to tell them, you will stand before Jesus and be judged. And in Christ, you can receive forgiveness for all your sins. But without Christ, trusting idols, you will pay eternally for your sins. So he's not able to just look out and say, this is great. Man, these people are really good. And he's grieved. And you know what his grief does? It causes him to get out in the marketplace and talk to people. Talk to people until they're starting to hear what he has to say and they want to learn more of what he has to say. I think it's important that Luke records this, that his spirit was provoked, this word which means distress. I think it's important important that that Luke records that because it shows us the motivation for his apologetic interaction with people. Sometimes apologetics can sound like the way to win the argument. Paul's not out just trying to win an argument to sort of intellectually subdue the pagans. He's grieved that they're dishonoring God and that he loves them, their lives, they're headed to an eternity, they're headed to judgment, which he warns them of. In just a moment, we'll see that. He, he's grieved by this. He engages with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I don't have any time to develop those philosophies at all. I don't know a ton about them. I know a little bit from my reading. But uh, these are two leading philosophies. Epicureans were typically upper class, a little wealthier. They believed that the gods were distant and not really involved in daily life. They were like what we might view as um, some early Americans, um, deists, 
who believe that God, one God, is not really involved in our daily life. So they were kind of like deists, tend to be wealthy, tend to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. The uh, Stoics were the, the common philosophy, much more common philosophy of the day. They kind of had an idea that everything is unified. They were almost pantheistic, that, that we are all connected together. So they believed that the gods were much nearer and that we're all part of, uh, through the logos, the, this one wisdom principle, we're all connected together. So there were two competing philosophies of the day. So he's talking with them. They call him a babbler. Um, They're wondering what he's talking about. They're thinking he's preaching foreign divinities. Why? Verse 18, he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they all want to hear about this because they all spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Some of you would love to have lived in that culture, right? You are like the Christian worldview people, and you study that, and you're into that, which is good, excellent, wonderful, but you like debate and philosophy, and you would love to live in a culture where the entertainment is just talking about ideas. I'm sorry to tell you, you live in America, uh, and that is not what we're into, We're not into asking what is the meaning of life. We're not into asking what is the nature of truth. We're trying to figure out what does the fox say. We are a a shallow type of a folk, typically speaking. On a university campus, perhaps you can engage in this way. But outside of that, we've got a football game to watch, okay? Uh, So uh, we're not quite the same. But these people are into the ideas. So I'm sorry if that's you. You were born, you know, a couple thousand years too late in a different place. But this is where they, so they they, want to take him to the Areopagus, and they take him there where he's going to address them. And here's what happens there, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that, he should, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And by this... He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So people went out from their midst. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul addresses this group. The Areopagus, uh, it means the hill of Mars. Um, it's Mars Hill. 
It's, it's a council, but it's also a location. We're not exactly sure which is here. He's, he's at the location for sure. Is he addressing the council formally? We're not really sure about that, but he's addressing people there, maybe the actual council. They determined uh, what gods were allowed. I mean, if you had a permit for a god and a religion, these are the guys you'd run it around if you wanted to get a permit for your religion in the city. So they were the council that oversaw religious matters and other governmental matters as well. And so he is brought before them at Mars Hill, and he addresses them there. He begins with this very general observation, verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. It's a neutral statement. He doesn't say whether that's good or bad. He just says they're very religious. And then he makes a point of connection with them. Look at what he does. Verse 23. I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, which are everywhere, by the way. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. So this was not unusual. Actually, in literature, other cultures had altars to unknown gods. Here's why. You lived your life trying to appease the gods, and there's different gods over different areas. So you've got like a god of rain, god of the harvest. You want to have children, god of fertility, a god of wine, um, a god of all kinds of gods, and so god of the sun. So you want to be in good with the gods, and so you do whatever it takes to appease them, offer sacrifices. But just so you don't miss it, and then get nailed because there was one God you were ignorant of, you could worship an unknown God, have a statue to the unknown God. So that way, if there's some God out there we didn't know, this is like the catch-all God. This is security. This is really your security. This is being a belt and suspenders guy. You're gonna, we're going to keep our pants up with our belt and our suspenders. We're going to be super secure. We're going to keep both. So we got all our gods, and then we've got the unknown God. So Paul is brilliant here. God gives him this insight. He's, he says, okay, you guys, they're brilliant. They're philosophically the elite. This is like being at the university. The Areopagus, it's Paul before the leading professors at Harvard or Yale in our culture. So what he does is they've already admitted they're ignorant of something. And so he, he takes that point of ignorance and he says, hey, I'm going to tell you something that you don't know about. You've already said there's an unknown God. I'm going to proclaim that God to you. What a tremendous entree for the gospel he he brings to them. And here's the points he makes. Again, this could be a full seminar. Let's be very, I'll be very brief about it. He, He first of all makes the point, he starts with creation. The God he's talking about, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God he's talking about created all and rules over all. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So what's he telling them? Hey, it's not multiple gods. There's one God. He rules over everything. I'm here to tell you about that God. He rules. He created everything. And so because he rules over everything created, you can't keep him in a temple. You can't localize him. You can't restrict him to sun, rain, harvest, fertility. You can't do that. He rules over all. This God is overall. So he's, he's addressing them by starting with creation. We only have two speeches in Acts where Paul addresses complete pagans with no Bible background. It's Lystra, the Zeus worshipers, and it's here. And, and if you'll remember there and here, he starts with creation. He doesn't say, open up your Bible to Psalm 30. They don't know Psalm 30. They don't know the God of the Bible, but they do know there's a creation. Romans says that everyone knows that and that everyone can see that God is real by looking at creation, but we suppress the truth of God 
and worship idols. That's exactly what they've done. So he starts with God. He says God is all-sufficient. He doesn't, it's not as if you, he needs anything, since he himself, 25, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Okay, God gives everything. He gives your life. He provides everything. So what, do you get, what does he really need? What do you give for the deity? What do you give to the deity who has everything already, right? What do you give to that deity? What can you give to God? You can't offer up something that God needs to somehow then cause him to owe you something. Your whole system of idolatry is false because the real God commands and does everything, owns everything, has given you everything. So what are you going to give to him? That's the point he makes. Um, he goes on. Uh, he, he's made every nation. He's made mankind live where they live. Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Verse 27. So what he's saying is all of us have a heart. All of us have a desire to know God. And he's put that in us so that we would grope for him, trying to find him. But here's the truth of it. He's very near you. This would have been against the Epicureans who thought God was distant. Uh, this, this would have rung better. The Stoics would have listened to this. This would have perked their ears. They believed along these lines. But he says God is very near you, and he's revealing himself to you ultimately right now. And then he does something radical. He quotes one of their authors, a 6th century B.C. poet uh, named Epimenides, who wrote, In him we live and move and have our being. So he's saying God has given us everything. We have life from him. Your own, you, your own cultural authors recognize this. And, uh, and so he was revealing himself to you. He goes on to say, even some of your own poets have said, this is a third century writer named Aratus, who said, third century BC, who said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he starts with God created and rules over all. Now he says God is the father of all humans. We're his offspring. Your own poet said this, and guess what? On that point, they were right. God did create us. Verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Okay, God made us. We're his offspring, so there's something about us that's like him, we're created in his image, in essence. So we shouldn't think that, that he is like gold or silver or stone, like he's an image. We are his offspring, and we think about what we're like. We have co- rational ability. We have emotions. We have, we're living. God is living. So how are we going to capture the living God in a stone, uh, in an idol made of stone or gold? That'll never happen. So he's just critiquing their idolatry, but look what he's doing. He's taking their own poets, he's entering their cultural, their cultural understanding, and he's sort of taking it and, and, and he's exposing the foolishness of their idolatry and pointing them to the one true God. Then he goes on to say, God will judge us. So he starts with God created and rules all, God gave life to us all, he created us, we can't control him. That's the nature of idolatry is to control God. We can't control him. Thirdly, God will judge us. He's looked over the times of ignorance, but he will judge the world, verse 31, by a man, Christ Jesus, ultimately, who he's given assurance by raising him from the dead, verse 31. So what he's saying is, he tells them about Jesus. Now, he didn't mention the cross here. Why? Well, because this is just an outline. I mean, you could read this thing in 45 seconds. Paul didn't address the whole Areopagus in 45 seconds, and some people believed uh, no, this is like an outline. Luke's just regarding, uh, um, 
recording some of the highlights. But if he talked about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it's safe to assume, since he preaches the gospel everywhere, that he talked about Jesus' death on the cross. He gives them the gospel. He tells them this Jesus was raised from the dead. They start mocking at that point. And he's going to judge us all. We're accountable to him. This God gives life. The God you don't know about, the unknown God, is Jesus Christ, who died for sinners to give us new life, be raised from the dead, and to give us eternal life and to judge us one day to stand before him. And if we have believed and received the gift of eternal life, we will be with him for eternity. So he tells them the gospel story. Some people mock. Some people wanted to hear more about this, verse 32, and uh, some people believed, including somebody who was in the Areopagus. That's a big deal. Dionysius believed, and also this person, Damaris, this woman believed as well. So how do we, how do we relate to this text? I mean, again, we could talk about his, his method of preaching the gospel. That would be valuable. But I want to talk about, briefly as we conclude, I want to talk about Paul's attitude and approach because I think that is vital for us to get. When Paul saw all of the idols, he's provoked in his heart. His heart is affected, distressed, stirred. Let me ask you this question. What, are, are you provoked by what you see around you? Do, you? do you and I, do we know the experience of being burdened or saddened, or grieved when we see the idols around us. You do know, right, that we're surrounded by idols. We are awash with idols, just like they were in Athens. We're sophisticated. We don't have a lot of statues. But we do live in a city of idols. An idol is a God substitute. An idol is anything that we look to instead of God. Any place we go to receive our satisfaction detached from God. It's anything that occupies the place that God should occupy. In the simplest way, an idol is a God substitute. So what are the idols around us? Well, nobody, I've never met anybody in Frisco that worships Zeus. I've never met anybody, you know, that, that we're, we're sophisticated. So we, we're materialistic. We worship wealth. Uh, we're intelligent and evolved. We, we worship dollar bills and what they provide. That's what we worship. We, we worship appearance. We worship youth. We worship comfort and image. We worship the image of the perfect family in where we live. We, we worship education. We worship success. Uh, we worship safety. People have flocked to this area because it's safe. The schools are good. The money is right. The people look good. That, that, that's the kind of things that we worship. And so when we look at the idols around us, here, here's, this can be my experience. Rather than being grieved and provoked and stirred emotionally in a way that I want to come and interact with the philosophers of the age as it was, we can be envious. Instead of provoked, we're envious. I wish I had that. Well, that sure looks good. I think I'd be happy if I had that. Do you know that feeling? They look like their life's pretty together. What could I offer them? What, what do they need from me? What, they don't, I don't think they need God. They look like they're better off than I am. We, we could be envious. Or we could be self-righteous. Look around at all of these shallow people. I mean, aren't they all so shallow? Aren't they fake? 
Aren't the people around here fake? They're just chasing stuff that doesn't last. They're so trendy, so surfacey, it's so suburban, sort of plasticky. You know, they're not like me, self righteous. So we can be self righteous. We can look at the idols. Because Paul doesn't do that. I mean, if you're Paul and you know God, you've been to the third heaven. I don't know if he's been there by now, but I didn't do my history on that. But if you've been to the third heaven and you know God, wouldn't you be tempted to say, you people have a statue to an unknown God. You are ridiculous. You think you are smart. You are ignorant. Would it not have been easy to go self-righteous on these people? Would it, I mean, would it not have been easy to, uh, to envy them? Whoa, Paul never built a building like this. Looking at the Parthenon, uh, this is incredible what you guys have achieved. He's not envious. He's not self-righteous. Here's how else we can respond to the idols of our age. We can just succumb to them. So we're not shocked. We're not grieved. We, we want them. We are what we call syncretistic, that we have Jesus and the idols of the age. We have whole religions that will tell that, that if you get Jesus, he'll give you all the wealth and, and, and everything else in the culture. That's just a syncretism between a worldly, worldly idolatry and the Christ of the Bible. And so we can go there and say, yeah, I, I don't see any idols. It looks good to me. I'm not distinct. We become exactly like our culture. And so we chase the same thing the culture does. We chase the same image. We chase the same status. We chase the same success, hoping that will bring us happiness, and it's a God substitute. The Bible calls that worldliness. It means that we have the same mindset as the world, and so you cannot distinguish us from the world. So... It's possible, rather than to be provoked at what we see around us, to be envious, to be self-righteous, or to be worldly. In other words, to be indistinct. Uh, Is that a word, indistinct? To to lack distinction from the world. But Paul reflects God's heart to Athens. He's provoked. And so how do we get there? I mean, I think we can be culturally aware I think we can interact with one another and help each other. I think we can confess where these areas represent our hearts and ask for God to help us. I think we can pray for those around us. I think we can speak up and witness like Paul did. And I think if we pray and think, ask the Lord, I think when we feel what God feels for our city, then we'll speak like Paul spoke to these people. Maybe not that eloquently. It probably won't be recorded forever. But you know what I'm saying, that we can speak. So are we provoked by what we see around us? Second question, and we're done. Are you interacting with those you see around you? Are you provoked by what you see around you? Are you interacting with those you see around you? I think it's very telling that Luke records immediately, his spirit was provoked. So, what did he do with his provoked spirit? Isolate himself, insulate himself, judge the culture, be afraid of the culture, run from the culture, start a Christian ghetto where we all get together and avoid the culture? Absolutely not. What did he do? He reasoned in the synagogue. He goes to the religious people and starts talking about Jesus. He was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He hung out in the coffee shop with all these philosophical people and talked about the ideas of the day and preached Jesus to the Epicureans and the Stokes. He ran to the culture. He ran to people that needed Jesus. It's very telling, very telling what he did. He he was not 
a separatist. It, it is a temptation for us to be separatists. Are you isolated and insulated from the culture, and are you passing that on to the next generation, that holiness equals isolation and fear of the culture? Now, everybody doesn't enter the culture the same way Paul does understand. I get that. But ultimately, that is the goal, that we are not culturally averse. We are not culturally... He's not culturally ignorant. He's not culturally unrelatable. He's different than the world, but he's in the world. So he's like the world in some ways, but he's different than the world. Here's Paul. Paul is culturally nimble. I think I can be culturally clunky. I think we can be culturally uncoordinated and awkward. I think I can be that way. Not Paul. Here's Paul. I'll go to the Jews. They're religious. I'll preach Jesus to them. We need to get Timothy circumcised as a witness. Let's do it. We're going to circumcise Timothy so that we can reach them with the gospel. He can move. He can, t- he can do whatever it takes without compromise or sin to connect and to relate with the religious Jews because he loves them and wants them to meet Christ. He can go to the Greeks, the pagans. What does he do when he shows up? Act all culturally unconnected and unrelatable? No. Let me tell you what your poets say. I hope you know that when Paul is quoting Greek poets, someone would get upset about that. How does he know that? How did he read that book? He shouldn't be on that website. He shouldn't download that song. That's worldly. He knew worldly. He understood that. He didn't believe it. He didn't compromise. But he knew what the culture thought and then used that to turn their own idols upside down and preach Jesus. So he is culturally nimble. So he can go to the Jews and relate. He can go to the Greeks. He relates. He crosses the sex barrier and relates to women. Jewish men wouldn't have... He didn't relate inappropriately, but they wouldn't have had that pathway to speak to women. In Philippi, the first person he reaches is a religious woman at the river, Lydia. Twice in the passage we read today, it said that prominent women came to Christ. So Paul just didn't relate to men. He could cross the barrier and preach Jesus in a way that women would hear him and hear the gospel and want to be saved. He can relate to slaves. He can relate to those who are free. He writes a letter to a master. Later in the New Testament, a slave owner, he writes him a letter. He can relate to prisoners. He can relate to uh, leading the, the prison guard to Christ. He's culturally nimble. He, this is what he means when he says, I've become all things to all men. He did not compromise. He did not sin. He was not worldly. But he was aware, he understood, he had a heart for people, he was familiar, he understood their worldview, he understood the marketplace of ideas and could interact. He's like Jesus. When Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, that is because Jesus ate and drank with sinners. Was Jesus a drunkard? Absolutely not. It's a false accusation. But he must have drank with somebody. He must have eaten with somebody. He was an unbeliever. He's a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. And so he was culturally nimble. He could move on a dime. He could connect. He could represent the Father. He is God. He could represent. He incarnated. He became flesh and reached people with the message of God. Paul did this as well. And so the balance is so, so important here. The balance is so clear that we are prophetic to our culture. Paul didn't compromise. What did he do to all these people? He said, Jesus is going to judge you. 
He's commanding you to repent. That's not worldly. That's not fitting into the culture. That's being light in the darkness. There's a place to say, we're different. I am different. I'm proclaiming to you God who is different, and you will go to hell if you do not believe in him. That's not wishy-washy. That's not soft. That's where we want to draw the line and be, be light in the darkness. But Paul's not culturally weird at other places. If we're going to be culturally weird, let's be weird at the right place. That's the right place. It's not all these other practices that are, that are perhaps very foreign that we don't need to radically distinguish ourselves. We need to distinguish ourselves in the gospel. This is where Paul distinguishes himself. He doesn't stand before them and say, all Greek poets are of the devil. I would never read that. We had a Greek poetry burning down at the fundamental uh, church that I came from, Paul. He didn't do that. I read your poets. I can quote them, but I don't believe them. I believe Jesus, and he takes a stand. So do you see the difference? We want to be light in the darkness. That means we need to be different. That means the character of Christ needs to be formed in us. Our love, our heart, the way we relate, we're going to be very different. So we're in the darkness, whoa, that person shines with the light of Christ. And we don't want to fit into the darkness so that when people encounter us, they say, well, I see nothing, you're just like anybody else. You believe in Jesus? I would have never guessed that. You're exactly like everybody else. We don't want to blend in and be darkness. We want to be light in the darkness. We want to be in the world, but not of the world. And we're going to each have to figure out how to do that according to Scripture and according to conscience. We're going to have to figure that out. I'm going to have to figure that out. And that takes some work. That takes some work. That doesn't mean I just instantly isolate myself. That doesn't mean I just instantly run into the world and act like everybody else. No, that means I'm going to have to study and think and understand what does it mean for me to do this, what we see here. Have a heart for those who don't know Christ. Relate with them in human ways. Communicate the gospel to them and love them. If you're not an adult, your parents are the guide for how you navigate that. I'm not your guide for navigating that. Your parents are your guide to navigate in the world, but not of the world. But we need to, parents, we need to be navigating that for ourselves and for our families. We need to be navigating that. And we may not all land exactly the same. In the world, but not of the world, may not look exactly the same. Maybe Paul read more Greek poetry than somebody else. That's fine. But he, he had a heart and he connected. And it starts with, am I provoked with what I see around me? And if I'm provoked, then I want to do the hard work of thinking and praying and then acting to build relationships and friendships and connections with the world, people in the world, so that we can get the gospel to them. We have to know where do we build a bridge and where do we erect a barrier. Paul erects the barrier around the gospel. And we're not going to agree, to. we're not just going to be okay with whether you believe or don't believe the gospel. He's saying, no, this is true. Please respond. That's, that's it. But can a believer read Greek poetry? That's going to be a bridge for Paul. That's going to be a bridge and not a barrier. The key is the heart walking in love, 
having a heart for the holiness of God, that he, he is not, that idols don't rule our city, but that Jesus does, and we're broken when idolatry rules our city. And that we're willing to connect and relate and run to people, run to need by God's grace. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us do the very hard work of what we see here. That first of all, we would not have a worldly mindset, but Lord, we would have your mindset that we wouldn't be like the world, just in the world and in the world and like the world, but that we would have your heart for people that don't know Christ. That our hearts would be broken by idolatry, that our hearts would be convicted by our own alluring to idolatry. Lord, give us this heart that we're provoked, that we're distressed that people are going to hell. That we're distressed that the holiness of God is being compromised by idolatry all around. And Lord, help us to go to the need. Help us to relate. Help us to not erect barriers that we should not. Lord, help the only stumbling block be Christ and him crucified and resurrected for sinners. Help us, Lord. Help us to do the hard work of Scripture which informs our conscience, which directs our actions, motivated by love. Love for you, love for others, Lord. And help us to do, do this and maintain and walk in unity. Help us to be a people that reach out in unity together, Lord. We pray, we pray for that. We ask for that. God, we ask that you would stretch us, that you'd work through us, that you'd speak through us, that you would do a glorious work. God, we're trusting you for this, uh, for us as a community and for us as a people. Lord, provoke us by what we see around us and empower us to interact with those we see around us with the truth of Jesus as those who are humble and broken and those who are desiring to love, serve, and to care. Oh God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.